This is deep dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Dr. Ray Sean Ray, man, welcome to the platform, my brother, man. Thank Glad you to so have much you for here. having me. No, man, what, let me let me just stop the press right now and just give you your flowers, man. From black man to black man, from the work that you do that I know is not easy, being black in the space that you're doing the work and what that comes with um, and how you have to be intentional at all times. A whole bouquet of flowers to you, man. And uh, mm -hmm. just thank you for, for the work that you do, fam. Thank oh, man, you. look, thank you. I really appreciate it. You know, yeah. it's, it's always a community <clears throat> doing this work. We appreciate your platform and the work that you do, not just here in Nashville, but throughout the country yeah. in terms of your reach and really aiming to bring a level of authenticity that we think is really, really important for the community to really raise up community assets and community voices mm -hmm. that are oftentimes marginalized, underfunded, underfocused on. So your platform is is definitely appreciated, and you and you have an amazing space. This Man, is dope. Hey, it's even more amazing when amazing people are in it, and so we this is a brave space. So we mm. we're gonna get straight into it. Um, one man, think they just think air, you know, just think the just whole initiative, the equity initiative of just being here in Nashville with the symposium. Man, I want to, I just want to say that first, um, it was an amazing event. I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the panelists, the speakers. Um, and just the networking, man. So just, just I don't, and I don't even want to spend too much time on that because <laughs> you, you got so much work and I want to get your perspective on a lot of things that's happening and mm -hmm. a lot of the things that were addressed yesterday in the symposium. So yeah. I just want to say that for the, so the viewers and the watchers can go back and just go to refer to it. But man, look, let's go ahead and get into this equity. You know, mm -hmm. um, what does that even mean to you at this point, um, equity? What does that look like and what does that mean? Yeah, so oftentimes people talk about Equality, that's a word that we hear a lot. Right. And over the past few years, we've been hearing equity more. They are different concepts, but they're related. Mm -hmm. Equality is giving everyone the same thing. Equity is giving people what they need. Yeah. And part of thinking about equity is centering a restorative justice perspective by understanding that people have been marginalized and oppressed and have not had the opportunity mm -hmm. to be treated equally. Yeah. So before we get to equality, we have to address equity. Mm -hmm. So at the American Institutes for Research with the AIR Equity Initiative, we are deliberate to think about equity mm -hmm. and centering that and giving communities what they need and then also lifting up assets. Yeah. So part of that is thinking about the deliberateness by which we do this work. And when we think about Nashville, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done in different parts of the city, whether that be the northern part, the southern part of the other city, in terms of the way that people have not been given equitable access to resources. Mm -hmm. And before we can even get to equality, we have to address the equity piece. Um, I always say this, especially uh, when it comes to black folks in particular, like, you know, a lot of people like to use their word ally, like mm -hmm. I'm an ally, right? <laughs> and I truly believe that black people specifically don't really know who's a true ally until we get racial equity. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of that, that ally comes from a social economic relationship a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But what happens when black folks only need and can support black folks economically and socially? How many allies do we have? Because we mm -hmm. know where our black dollar high circulates in other communities mm -hmm. three, four, five times. And so when I think about equity a lot of times too, I think it's like it's a cost, you know, and it's a racial cost that I don't know if when we get to that point, it'd be interesting how society responds to black folks in particular, when it, when we, if we ever <laughs> fully get equity, but definitely social and economic equity mm -hmm. in this country. Well, you know, I mean, even when, when there are spaces where black people have been able to gain some semblance of equality, 
-hmm. Oftentimes what we've seen historically is that, is that those particular communities have literally been bombed. Mm -hmm. Literally. literally yep. Whether we're talking about Tulsa, whether we're talking about Philly, whether we're talking about Rosewood, whether we're talking about Detroit and East St. Louis, communities and neighborhoods now that people vilify, mm -hmm. not realizing that they were thriving. North Nashville falls into that group. When we look at Fisk, Meharry, Tennessee State University, these continue to be anchor institutions that produce some of the best and brightest among us, not just black folks, right. but among us on the planet. Right. And they have done that in marginalized communities in ways that we haven't seen. When we start talking about allyship, I actually think that there are a lot of people across the board who are allies. This is the problem with being an ally, though, and stopping there. When you're an ally, you can be silent. Mm. Instead, we have to progress to a typology that I call being a racial equity advocate and a racial equity broker. That first starts with being a racial equity learner. It's learning the history mm. about the policies, procedures, and rules that have governed among us that have created systemic inequalities. Second, we can then use that information to become a racial equity advocate. Being an advocate oftentimes means when people are not present who are being marginalized, and when you are sitting at a table and people are talking about people who are not present, do you speak up and speak out for them? Mm. That's just not about race, that's about gender, that's about sexual orientation, it's about a host of things that we could talk about mm -hmm. in terms of what it means to be an advocate and speak up and speak out, yeah. right? Third, we go to being a racial equity broker. That's when we really start to interrogate the rules, policies, procedures, and laws that govern over, over us, and we act to change them to ensure that they are equitable and equal. Yeah. And then we think about what it means to be an accomplice. That means literally being willing to put yourself in the space of other people mm -hmm. who you know that when you are present, they are treated differently because you are there. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some of that, but we, we need to continue to bring people along. And I do think that when we look at Nashville, we see um, a level of diversity. We see demographic shifts, younger people moving in, people who are more educated moving in, people who have been here for a long time, who we want to keep in their homes, who have been renting forever to ensure that their rents aren't going up. Mm -hmm. So when we think about that, we can put it in that particular context. You also mentioned brave spaces, right? Mm -hmm. People oftentimes talk about safe spaces. There just aren't too many safe spaces for black and brown folks, to be honest with you, right? right. Instead, most of us are entering into brave spaces. For me, the, the real only safe spaces for me is my house and my grandmama's couch, right? Mm -hmm. Like my grandma's couch has always been safe. Yeah. But the brave spaces is we enter into these spaces realizing that it's gonna cost us something. Right. There was um, a woman that I heard at a conference, just phenomenal. She was uh, one of the first, well, I think the first black um, lesbian pastor who had got her doctorate from Duke University in theology. Mm. And she was pastoring over a church and people were applauding her at this conference for all of her first and the way that she's breaking through. And she said, you know, while y'all are applauding me for breaking through glass win windows and glass ceilings, you all didn't realize how many times I got cut while I was breaking that glass. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of work that people do mm -hmm. that people don't oftentimes readily recognize. And this is why that allyship, it can be there, but we need advocacy and brokerage mm -hmm. because people need to heal after they've been in these spaces doing this work. Right. As you mentioned, doing this work is extremely difficult. Yep. And people always say doing the work. And at the ARR Equity Initiative, what I'm so proud of is that we are able to fund and support organizations and researchers that are undervalued, mm -hmm. that are underutilized, that are underfocused on, to give them the resources to be successful. And this is what's important. When I say be successful, many of them already are. They're doing so many amazing things in the local community. And many of them did not ask to be right. organizers, researchers, activists. Right. But 
their plights and their current situation put them in that. Right. So the equity initiative has the ability to fund people and provide resources. And we did that here in Nashville. Researchers, artists, talking to, to platforms like yours mm -hmm. in terms of actually putting money where our mission is right. and aiming to think about using evidence to build equity. Right, yeah, equity costs. You gotta you got you got to put the funding behind it in order to amplify, back support, and give those who's doing the work mm -hmm. opportunity to heal, but also capacity building, right? That's Sustainability, right. scalability um, in that work. And as you know, from organizing and doing this work, a lot of times it comes down to the lack of funding. Uh, right? The it lack of funding the, is huge. The lack of funding, and a lot of times too, a lot of people that are doing the work, a lot, of, a lot of these people ain't entrepreneurs, right? A lot of these people are not businessman or woman. That's right. They just want to do the work. That's right. right? They just want to fill a void that they see and, and figure out the money later, or have somebody else figure out their mm -hmm. development piece, right? And so a lot of times coming and mixing the two can be contentious sometimes. It's like, where's the money coming from? Who do I have to go ask for yeah. this money? What? Do I have to conform at any type of level, at, at any point, in mm -hmm. order to use this money? A lot of right. times. And, and that kind of segues into my next point about systems. Mm -hmm. That was a big kind of pillar of yesterday's conversation about systems. Yeah. Um, I am not a system person. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of ridiculous for marginalized, oppressed people to believe that a system that is oppressing you is going to be the same system mm. that liberates you mm -hmm. right at no cost mm -hmm. and so i'm interested mm -hmm. in your thoughts about that that interaction that intersection with system and oppressed people mm -hmm. and those who are trying to maybe infiltrate be a part of the system believing or hoping they can create some type of change and a lot of times it's around policing i want to mm -hmm. be a police officer or i think i but we know that system it, it does something to folks. So I'm curious on your perspective of that intersection between people wanting to do good work and within the system and how the system maybe perpetuates harm or does perpetuates harm even to good folks, good meaning, intentional, willing people. Yeah. Well, I mean, oftentimes people become part of the system. And when you become part of the system, your role oftentimes dictates how you can interact within that system. Yeah. So you brought up a police officer. We could think about an elected official. Right. We can even think about teachers or professors or whomever that are part of these different systems. And when we think about it, let's, let's break it down, right? So I'm a sociologist and I, I am a structuralist. So I think about these systems in a way that I think can help people make sense of them. So there are multiple levels if we take, if we take racism. We have the micro, meso, and macro levels. Mm -hmm. Micro level is, is typically the way people experience systems, the way people experience what we would call social institutions, mm -hmm. neighborhoods, education, mm -hmm. politics, media, work, right? These are social institutions that we interact in. So oftentimes we limit it to that. And because of the way the segregation operates on a macro level, which I'll get to in a second, what happens at the meso level is that at the meso level, it functions through social context. One of the best ways to think about social context without getting into the, the conceptual term even more is racial composition okay. or household composition of a neighborhood. So for example, we can look at Nashville. On the surface, it's a very, very diverse city. It has roughly around a third of black people, Latinos, and white people, right? Somewhere in the realm of 27 to 35%, mm -hmm. depending on where you go with each group. You hear that and you're like, oh, that's super diverse. No, but people are highly segregated. 
I mean, you have black folks in North Nashville. Diversely segregated. Exactly. You have white folks in West Nashville. You have Latinos in South and East in East Nashville. Highly, highly segregated, right? And so then what happens is at the systems level, what we have is what people would call systemic racism or structural racism, where we see racism operating through our policies, our laws, our rules, our regulations, and even de facto policies. That might not necessarily be in place. De facto regulations, what we would call mores, mm -hmm. things that are just implicit rules. Mm -hmm. Where we heard that at the panel yesterday, where there were people, professors, physicians, saying that, yeah, I just know when I'm riding, even in my own neighborhood, that I need to put my white coat in the passenger side. Mm -hmm. That even when I'm walking or running down the street, that I need to have my medical ID or my university ID on me. Sociologists, we call that. Uh, a signaling process. Mm. You are trying to signal your status to other people because it will dictate how you're treated. Mm. And one of the big things I found to make a link to policing is some of the research that I've done when I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, which now is it's been a long time ago as I get up there in age. But I was doing research on physical activity. Mm. And I had a finding that black people and black men specifically were less physically active in predominantly white neighborhoods. Mm. That had to do with over-policing. Not just by police coming in, but by their own neighbors, mm. in their own neighborhoods. Mm. And they would go through this signaling process. They would wear, take their ID with them. They would wear an alumni t-shirt. They would wave and smile at neighbors. They would run in well-lit places. Things that when you're trying to exercise, exercise is hard enough. You, don't, you shouldn't have to go through all of those barriers to do that, right? And so you put all that together and you have what's happening at the micro, meso, and macro level where most people see things at the micro level, which means for black people, most of the people they might perceive that might be doing things to them mm -hmm. are people in their own community. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes, oftentimes those individuals become part, their role is now part of a system yeah. that becomes part of enforcement. Whether that be in the streets, in their community, people trying to play basketball at a park, trying to exercise, and here comes somebody telling them that they can't be at a park in their own neighborhood. There's schools, somebody telling a kid they can't bring a little toy to school because mm -hmm. they can't do it. But across town, you can bring all the little teddy bears you want, and instantly that's telling kids and putting limits on what they can be. Mm -hmm. And that is part of a system right. that people are in that have given them rules and policies to police people that are black or brown mm -hmm. in this particular area. Right. And so when we think about systems, that's the way that systems of oppression operate. And they're cumulative. Yeah. They're not separate. And they're not even additive. They're intersectional and mm -hmm. multiplicative in what happens. So when kids are going from their home to their schools, there is a process there that links their neighborhoods to their schools. When they're going to work, there is a link there. And collectively, it starts to play a role where there are these hurdles that people have to get over structurally and systemically. Mm -hmm. Then there are also marginalizations and cuts that they experience. Forms of discrimination, not just perceptions, but actual experiences that they have mm -hmm. that cumulatively lead to one group of people having to think about whether or not they've been discriminated against and how they're going to process that. And another group of people able to live freely where a fourth or fifth grader can just think about a math problem. They can just think about reading a book. But these kids on the other side of town don't have those same opportunities. And you put it together and it starts to create gaps where teachers in predominantly black, low, particularly low-income neighborhoods, they are less prepared, mm -hmm. literally. They score lower on their test. Mm -hmm. They don't have as many resources. Right. They don't have as much time to work with kids. They have more students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Whereas over here, this ratio is one to 10, right. it's one to eight. Teachers can spend time with each of these kids compared to over here, 
They got 30, 40 kids in the classroom. Right. And then what does it look like? People are like, those kids just don't want to learn. They're just not smart. Mm-hmm. No, that's completely not what it is. Right. It's a system at play that we can't see all the time. Right. And that's part of what makes systemic oppression so powerful right. is that we can't see it, <laughs> but it yeah. is all around us. Man, you, you, you made me think about the running thing with the uh, Maude Aubrey uh, case that happened. He was running exercises in his neighborhood. And- well, well, see, this is the thing about Ahmaud Aubrey. You, you brought that up. So Ben, ben Crump called my research in this space the Ahmaud Aubrey effect. Wow. And I actually consulted on that particular case to end up getting them convicted. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's the type of thing that research can actually do. And, so, and, so, and, and, and that's the thing about the system. And when you say, like, sometimes people don't see it, you have people like yourself and others that have took in all of these examples, quantified it, mm-hmm. put it in analytical forms, put it as clear as people can see it as day, and people are still saying, hey, you know, <laughs> what, what do we do? Like, we have the results. Mm-hmm. We have the data. We have it in any type of form or way that you can possibly understand it and break it down. And then it's like, okay, how do we come up with the solutions to combat a system? Yeah. How do you combat a police system? How do you combat a legislative system that is perpetuating harm, neglecting communities, rooted in systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. Rooted in white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. And continuously doing this and you saying, we know it's happening. Yeah. We have data that's showing the disparities. What can we do about it? Yeah. At this point, how, so how? And that's in that. That is kind of my frustration a lot of times. Um, when we when they asked yesterday, like, what does peace mean to you? Like, yeah. how do you achieve peace? And it, for me, it's like we got to dismantle white supremacy. Then I think we all be peaceful globally, yeah. right? Because this yeah. stretches beyond just the United States. Um, and so I just think about systemically and systems. I don't know if we can combat it in a diplomatic way. Mm-hmm. And I think that conversation makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I'm curious, especially when you're talking about interaction with police, mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about like abolishing or combating systems that they they have unlimited resources to respond in any type of way, form, or fashion. But like, what do we do when we've checked out all of the boxes? Yeah. And we've done all that we can do <laughs> since 1968, mm-hmm. right? And, and and prior. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I think. I think the first. It's only so much you can research, Doc. It's only <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying. I don't think we're gonna research our way out of this, right? Which I know you yeah. also understand as well. But it helps paint the picture. But I'm, that's that's like cutting through that is yeah. is is those solutions. I know we talked about you all talked about that a little bit yesterday. The symposium, like getting to those solutions. But I think some of those solutions, again, like it makes some people some of them real solutions. It makes people a little uneasy because I truly believe liberation mm-hmm. for oppressed and marginalized people is is not going to come through no legislation. Mm-hmm. That's my personal perspective. Mm-hmm. And so it, what else is there? Yeah. You know, there's other strategic ways that I think we'll have to prepare ourselves for and really start having that conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I think research is not only about examining the problems. One thing we do <laughs> at the AIR Equity Initiative, we aim to focus on solutions interventions and innovations Mm. to say what is working. So Mm. part of the research evaluation is to say what's working. You know, there, when it comes to policing, for example, there actually are places or things specifically in places to be more specific. There's not really places got it right, but things that are working. Mm -hmm. Part of the issue though, is we have such a deficit approach to research Mm -hmm. and, and this particular issue. So we only focus on the problems. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, the only police officers we hear about oftentimes are the ones that's done something wrong. Well, what about the other ones? Many of them are doing things right. Yeah. We don't study them, right. right? That's what we do at the Equity Initiative. We aim to center 
the things that actually are working and lift them up. Mm -hmm. I think on one hand, first, there's a role for everybody to play. Right. Like, and people have to figure out what their entry point is. So I think that's the first thing. There is literally a role for everybody to play. And I think fundamentally, oftentimes, it just starts with voting, mm -hmm. if you can, right? Or aiming to ensure that people who have been disenfranchised from voting have mm -hmm. the ability to do that. I think second, though, there are definitely a lot of people who think just about abolition. Mm -hmm. They're like, we can't change the systems that are meant to oppress us because mm -hmm. there are people who benefit and get privileges mm -hmm. from the way the system is currently set up. And they're going to aim to hold on to that at all costs, right? Mm -hmm. There's definitely a group of people that's there. The way that I think about it, while that is being pursued, right, that there is a role to be sitting at the table. And part of that means when people have not really set at difficult tables, they don't really understand that you're stepping into the lion's den. Yeah. St you're stepping into fire in a way that people have not seen before. Right. And that takes courage. That's the bravery right. right? that happens with brave spaces. So I encourage people to get into those spaces to actually see what that looks like, right? Because mm -hmm. there are change agents and change tables. Yeah. And people need to think about the tables they're sitting at. I think when it comes to law enforcement, look, policing is pretty much the oldest social institution that we have. Right. It's older than the founding of our country. I mean, it was founded as slave patrols right. to patrol black people trying to flee plantations mm -hmm. who were trying to run away to, to their freedom. Right. So part of thinking about that is why would we think mm -hmm. that still at the root of that, mm -hmm. that that is what should govern over us and keep us safe when we right. talk about public safety. Right. So we, and we also got to think about this. You mentioned 1968. Okay, that was the Fair Housing Act, right? right? That was when MLK was assassinated. But then, of course, we go back to 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. Then we got mm -hmm. 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. Then we can go even before that and we could think about not only the end of slavery, but then the onset of Jim Crow and some additional policies that came in like redlining mm -hmm. and restrictive covenants and all of that. I make that point to say through all of this, law enforcement largely stayed unchanged. Mm -hmm. 1964 <laughs> Civil Rights Act, the same cops, we go to 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, the same cops that were preventing black kids from going to school were the same ones the next day after the policy, right? <laughs> now, I do think the policy change is really important. Like, we wouldn't be sitting right here right now if we didn't have a civil rights legislation. But what people don't really realize is the way that policies get rolled back, mm -hmm. that we have to continuously fight to maintain right. just the level of equality that we are pursuing mm -hmm. and i say are pursuing right but i think on the policy front for policing there are some specific things that are really really important and we heard that from some of our arr grantees partly it's lifting up communities yeah it is centering data for the reasons that i mentioned earlier yeah. about deficit data and actually focusing on a small group of officers who inflict a large amount of harm yeah. but also then looking at the lack of accountability that they receive over 90% of officers who kill someone in the United States, which happens roughly every eight hours, by the way, and every 40 hours for black people, which disproportionately, we are just so much more likely to be killed by the police. And it's a very, very important stat. Black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when we are not attacking and when we don't have a weapon. Mm. I'm going to say it again because people don't mm. really get it because they assume mm. that we're doing something wrong. Yeah. We don't have a weapon. Mm -hmm. We are not attacking 3.5 times more likely. Who says that? Police officers say that. Mm -hmm. It's coming from police data, mm -hmm. right? So, so we can deal with that. We can collect data. And this is why the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which I happened to work on, and it just it was devastating that it didn't pass because I think that Republicans and Democrats were on board with it. And it's sad when political theater gets in the way of policy change that can really make a difference. 
But in there, collecting data is really important. Mm -hmm. There are only about 40% of police departments that actually send data to the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the like for this. So that should be mandatory, first off. Yeah. The other thing is dealing with um, police insurance mm -hmm. and qualified immunity, yeah. which over 90% of officers who kill someone are never charged. And a higher percentage of those who are end up getting off. Now, people have seen some high-profile cases recently. Elijah McClain, who was the young man who was killed in Colorado, which was just a tragic situation. Yeah. An officer was convicted in that particular case recently, right? Now, those things are important for accountability. The problem, though, is that police officers have a lot of internal accountability. They are policed by their own. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get a very different outcome. And, and, and oftentimes, they're policed for, for trivial things, like boots not being clean enough or cussing or doing something with your vehicle or being a little late. I mean, things that matter. But then when they do something to people, oftentimes they might be applauded for that. You go into some departments, they have an arrest or an arrest board. Mm -hmm. Who's made the most arrests? Who's done these sort of things? Instead of a board that says, who's had the most conversations with community members? Yeah. Who's helped the most people right. this week? More positive things that they're doing, they don't get rewarded for those particular things. Yeah. A police officer can go their whole career without ever being told that they did a good job. We have to think about what that does to your psyche. Yeah. And we got to think about what that means to be trained in a way right. where you view the public as the enemy instead of somebody who could actually be your neighbor. Yeah. And so I do think that there are some things that are happening. Co-responder programs are really, really important here in terms of mental health and law enforcement going out to do that. We yeah. can also think about advanced trainings yeah. that can do some of the work. But I think the biggest thing in terms of how we think about these particular issues mm -hmm is the police insurance is extremely, extremely important. Yeah. Right now, if a person sues for police brutality, you know who pays that money? You pay it, yeah, right? Pay it, yeah. Taxpayer money pays mm -hmm. it. And in some cities like Chicago, where they don't have enough money to pay it, it is bonds that are put on the open market that people purchase that then taxpayers have to pay back later at a high interest because they didn't have enough money to pay it. And we're talking about billions of dollars spent right on police brutality. That money could go to education, yeah. it could go to work infrastructure, it could go to health equity. And so we put all this together, there are some changes to be made as we're thinking about and people are pursuing potentially abolishing the current system that we have and building a new one. I was a part of some of that work, um, that organizing work to get that co-response with MMPD that we have here and um, mm -hmm. the, the co-op with the health department. And that was, it's, we, we have something, right? Um, because we didn't have anything at all before. Um, and they're just part of organizing. It's not a zero-sum game a lot of times. Sometimes yep. it's, we got something, let's work to it, let's do a pilot. That's um, right. And that's good, it, and it's important for people to understand that. Um, it's the difference between mandating and implementation. Yep, exactly. Two very different things. And implementation can be, I mean, man, getting to a mandate can be slow. Yep. But implementation can be very, very slow. Right. And the devils are in the details about what you have to do to kind of think about implementation, yeah. which is another part of sitting at the table and doing mm -hmm. that work. You know, John Lewis would always say, well, you know, Shirley Chisholm would say, and they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Yeah. John Lewis would say, don't just give me a seat at the table and don't just serve me a plate. I need to be able to cook. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to prepare and put it on the table. Right. And that's the part of the process that we don't go far enough to. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, people are just good with sitting at the table. they like, oh, I'm here. And they don't realize that when they're at these tables, they're representing more than themselves. Yeah. When I sit at these tables, this is not me sitting at these tables. Right. This is all the people who I've worked with, who I've yeah. done research on, the people who are marginalized, who can't sit at these tables, who yeah. don't have the opportunity. I'm representing them. Yeah. I'm not going in here to be happy and shake hands. I'm coming in here to work for people who aren't present. Yeah. And I think sometimes when we get at these tables, which are daunting, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. because you go from a table that looks like you Mm -hmm. in local organizing to a table that does not look like you. Precisely. And that is intimidating. And that is the level of training that we have to get back to to prepare people mm -hmm. for sitting at those tables and doing that hard work yeah. because it is about the implementation yeah. and putting your foot on the gas and continuing mm -hmm. not to let up simply because something passed. But as we talked about earlier, it's tiring and exhausting. Yeah. And people doing this work have to engage in a level of self-care yeah. and preservation to protect themselves because you can't do that work if you're not healthy. Yeah. Nah, man, I, I I was just in one of those tables last week. <laughs> and this is the first time this has ever happened to me while I've been on this table. And I don't sit on really too many boards just because, like, boards is a whole other conversation on how they structure, right? <laughs> um, but I did a lot of work for this organization as a volunteer, as a, as a director, and then now as a board member, right? Um, and they're trying to hire a new person, right? Mm -hmm. They, you know, the director wants to step down. Um, she's identified a, a white male, right? And this is dealing with homelessness, right? Who, which black people are dis disproportionately affected by, right? Yep. And so we jump on this like kind of ad hoc. Let's let's meet this guy. Let's some board members already had one on ones with him and stuff like that. You know, I looked at his resume, CV. Okay, he's qualified with it, right? That's not an issue. Like, is there going to be a process though? In in selection order? process. Yeah, it's going to be. Is there going to be a selection process, or are we just giving this person this position, mm -hmm. right? the ladder, right? They just gonna get this person position. Oh, okay, well I have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Right? I have I have a, a fairness problem, but I have a racial equity problem with that, right? Bingo. Because we know who is affected by this decision the most. Mm -hmm. Black people. Black and brown folks, right? And then we don't give the opportunity for a qualified candidate that represents the impact that we're trying to serve, right? Right. Got real got real it's contentious. It's contentious for two reasons. One, because I brought it up. Mm -hmm. But two, they understand who I am. <laughs> in this city, in this region, right? And so they they gonna have to figure out something, right? And I already know where I stand. There ain't no kind of moving. I don't care how qualified anybody is, you know. But it's like it's a process. But that when it goes to yeah. you're not just representing yourself, you represent the whole body. You have to stand on that. You just can't be about diversity, inclusion, and access and equal on certain things. That's right. It has to be everything, yeah. right? And that's and that's what people try to do. They try to be about it in one particular thing. Oh, we did this. We we got a we got a, a Latinx person. We have a person from the gay community. We have a black person. We have a woman. Like, nah, okay, cool. Kudos. But nah, you gotta keep that energy about everything. Yeah. And yeah, it can be challenging, but that's the process. Welcome to the party. Mm -hmm. And so when you said that it just made me think about a current situation that I'm presently having to illuminate for people like nah like this ain't about me it ain't about it's about the collective goal for everybody we say we say national po progressive city like you got to show me you just can't say that and right. that's like a natural problem too yeah agree a, mm -hmm. a huge natural problem man i want to kind of go back and you, know, you got your your, your t-shirt in recidivism <clears throat> everybody you know check that out it's on camera it's, it's, yeah, and it, yeah and this yeah, is yeah. this is um yeah. a t-shirt um yeah in recidivism yeah. t-shirt right which I, oftentimes people don't exactly know what it means it yeah. means we're trying to reduce people from going back to incarceration yep. and a lot of that has to do with the lack of work opportunities yep. we're currently working with organizations that are helping people recover from addiction mm -hmm. helping people who are getting out of prison to get work opportunities to be entrepreneurs to actually learn so that then they can better their lives and hopefully not go back to prison yeah I, and I've, I've talked to a lot of judges talked to a lot of people that have been uh Encaged in mm -hmm. our penal system, um, and most majority of people come back home, right? We know that majority yep. of people, ninety, maybe ninety-two, ninety-five percent people actually 
don't stay in prison for their whole life, right? They come back home, but they have these barriers, right? Mm -hmm. That you talk about housing, employment, yep. uh, stigma, or yeah. this that you, you know, no support from community in general, right? And That's then right. They, they, they may reoffend, or they may end up unhoused. They may just, end, who knows, right? But I want to go into, again, kind of that, that criminal, I don't really say, I don't say criminal justice system. I either say public safety or criminal legal system, because I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know if we experienced justice. I don't. Yeah. I don't know if we've seen that in this country, um, as a whole, right? Um, so I'm curious on how. What What does that process look like? Of people like to say reform. I don't. I don't. I don't know about reform. Reimagine. I don't. I don't know what mm -hmm. that. What that really means either. But that that criminal system and that restorative approach. Mm -hmm. Restorative is tough. It's hard. And it's a buzzword these days, but I don't think people really understand what the self-work you have to do yeah. in order to be like, this person harmed me. I want to sit down face to face mm -hmm. and allow and tell this person that you've harmed me. You broke into my car. Let's just start that. You broke into my car. Now I can't get to work. I can't mm -hmm. drop my child off to school. I'm missing. I'm, I'm missing money. I'm mm -hmm. harmed and I'm set back. Right. That's yeah. just like a very conservative level of uh, talking about restorative justice, right? But we get into some of the major hard, cruel yeah. crimes, murder, rape, you know, just violence in that yeah. type of way. How, how, do we, how do we get people to be able to wrestle with that restorative approach and not always think of accountability being, I have to take 20, 30 years of your life, of your body. Yeah. You know, you gotta be held accountable, but is there, why is that my only choice, yeah. right, as a community member to be able to seek, quote, unquote, justice? Yeah. I mean, I, I think first, I think extreme violent crimes are tough, right? Yeah. You talk about murder, rape. Yeah. Um, but if we're talking like, about, yeah. say, nonviolent offenses mm -hmm. that oftentimes don't involve a person that have been overly criminalized mm -hmm. because of mandatory minimum sentences mm -hmm. that mostly had to do with the war on drugs yeah. and how that was a deliberate process. I mean, we saw yesterday from... One of our um, colleagues at the American Institutes for Research, Candace Hester, show a map or a graph of incarceration rates by year. And you can see just with, started with Richard Nixon when he was president and continued through Reagan and the like, even through Clinton and even Biden playing a role in this with the 1994 uh, crime bill, is that we've just seen huge increases in incarceration. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that is most people are incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses. And there really aren't any differences across race in drug utilization. It's only a differences in the way that people are penalized for it. Right. Particularly when we start talking about, say, crack versus powder cocaine. Right. But now that we're entering this opioid epidemic era, we see a lot more generosity mm -hmm. and a lot more caring and humanity about empathy because people are seeing the way that it's impacting their particular communities. Particularly when we talk, start talking about low income, white, rural spaces, we see that playing out. I think when it comes to, uh, to, to what people would call either, as you were saying, criminal justice system, not using that term, thinking about other sorts of things, I think there are a couple things to think about. I think first it is dealing with policies that overly incarcerate people. Right. I think second, what restoration looks like is restoring people when they get out to make them whole. Mm -hmm. Part of that looks like allowing them the right to vote when they get out, which right. there are some states that have made that opportunity. When it comes to the stigma of incarceration, that's real. Yeah. I mean, and that's a thing. And how do we address that? Well, partly it's connected to race. Mm -hmm. uh, Diva Pager, sociologist at Harvard, 
did an amazing study looking at uh, the relationship between race, incarceration, and employment. And what she found truly shocked her. She sent out men with resumes who, mm. similar resumes pretty much looked the same. It's what we call an audit study. And sent, sent them out to interview. And what she found was not only did white people without a criminal record get called back and hired more than black people, mm -hmm. but white people with a criminal record, with a criminal record, called got back. called back and hired more than black people without and so we have to deal with that issue and realize that when we talk about... What? Um, systemic, systemic racism exists? Is that what you just <laughs> told me? What? Systemic, right. What? Oh, I mean, so, I mean, so it starts to impact all of that. So, so you know, I think, I think restoration mm -hmm. for people who are incarcerated, it looks like treating them whole when they are inside as yeah. well. For people who have mm -hmm. never been inside prisons and inside those walls, Inhumane. I mean, this is just... I mean, it's a terrifying environment. Even for juveniles. Yeah. And people don't readily understand what it means to be put into a cage and not have the opportunity when you've been told, oh, yeah, you're going to be able to rehabilitate. There is no re rehabilitation, right? The system is set up yeah. for them to stay there. Why? Because people are making money off of that. There are literally towns around the country where there are prisons. Not only are people employed mm -hmm. by those prisons, but then you can also count that population on the census to get more resources. Right. And then third, people can actually purchase stock in private prison. So mm -hmm. there is a huge investment right. in the infrastructure in ensuring that people stay incarcerated instead of being restored. So I want to dive in, because I, I got you here. Oh, yeah, I want yeah, okay. yeah. to dive into the psychology of that. Mm -hmm. Because that's, how do we change the minds of everyday citizens, right? Change the minds? Change the minds of, when, when it comes to, when it comes to <clears throat> the conditions and the unhumane mm -hmm. ways and environment of, of jail and prison. Because I yeah. think we're conditioned, right, as American citizens, that punishment and harm is the, the best accountability, even from, from school, right? Yeah, of course. But even from school, right? And it, and it, and it tripped me out just recently. I have a three-year-old son, right? It tripped <laughs> me out just recently. We never talk about jail. Never talk about prison. What I need to talk about that for with a three year old. Come mm -hmm. back home one day. He just he's playing. Like I'm gonna put you in jail. What? Yeah. Like, like so so from? so where's it coming from? So from a community member standpoint and from a systems, how can we get away psychologically for even thinking about like that's where it starts when yeah. you do something wrong in general. Yeah. And not because I think honestly, when somebody if I punch you right now or it's like I need to harm you back or. I send him to jail. Send yeah. her to, how can we break that mentality? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's three things. First, we have to decouple what I was just talking about, the finances uh -huh. from people being incarcerated. And until that happens, people are going to be fundamentally invested in people being behind bars. Right. That's the first thing. Second thing, we have to expose people mm -hmm. to that particular experience and what that looks like. And it's in no scared straight or whatever shows people be watching and thinks shows them what's happening behind these bars. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what that means then is centering the people most affected. That's what we're doing at the Equity Initiative is mm -hmm. we are centering and working with formerly incarcerated people to raise up their voices and their experiences, mm -hmm. to show the diversity of them, that if they end up being successful, they're not a token. Right. There are several of them like this, yeah. and particularly when it comes to the level of people who are incarcerated every single year mm -hmm. and cycle in and out of prisons and jails, it's a large number of people. Yeah. And we want to highlight their experiences, which I think can create a level of empathy. I've seen it. We've taken people into prisons, into spaces, and they, they are in their crime. They come out just transformed 
by that particular experience. I mean, even yesterday, just mm. hearing people talk about it, people were transformed. Yeah. There's something transformative about hearing people's story and seeing it and connecting with them. Proximity matters. Proximity matters. And the third thing I'll say, which I think is the biggest one, it is policy change. Let's think about this. Most white people were not for the change that happened in the 60s. Most, most white people were not for slavery ending, yeah. right? But you know what? Those policy changes happened. Mm -hmm. And because of that, people's attitudes eventually caught up. Right. Why is that? Because they start to interact differently. Right. They start to think differently. Our narratives start to shift. Right. And I think we're starting to see narrative shifts about formerly incarcerated people, mm -hmm. about returning citizens, right? Yeah. The narrative is no longer, oh, these are people that are scary that I need to avoid. Yeah. Instead, it's like, oh, tell me your story. Let me yeah. get some context for this. Now, we still got to work on the workspace. Yeah. Employers say they want to hire people, but we find that they really don't, particularly for, um, for jobs where people interact with the public. Right. They still don't want to do that, right? right? But that's why the tech industry is so important here, because a lot of those jobs you don't have to, that becomes a lower, a lower entry with higher paying jobs. Right. You can get people a skill set even when they're still incarcerated and quickly mm -hmm. when they get out. But that policy change is important. And we got to realize what research tells us is that the policy change oftentimes leads to attitudinal and behavioral change, right. not the other way around, right? And we make that assumption. We look at school desegregation, tons of white folks out picketing with signs trying to stop. Shoot, Jerry Jones was standing out there yeah. in the crowd, right, when we look at all of this. And now all of a sudden, we fast forward with policy change. And to a lot of people, he might be one of, um, one of the owners that thinks about these things in a particularly different way. doesn't mean that it's right or great, right. right, but better. And so we put things on a continuum. So realizing, and, and I think part of the thing that's difficult for people, it's difficult for people to understand policy change and what that looks like, right? Yeah. I mean, I've testified before Congress. I've worked on legislation. It's a different beast. It's a different process. And I think it's archaic, and I think it's problematic. But within the current system, we can still work within that right. and do certain things, but we can't do it if we don't get involved, right? One of my favorite sayings is, if you want to change the game, you got to really learn how to play it first. Yeah. And you learn how to play it so well that then you can start to bend things around the edges and shape it yeah. in a very different way, right? So yeah. learn how to play the game and play it well. But mm -hmm. what I hear a lot of people doing is sitting on the sidelines wanting to play Monday morning quarterback about what's happened on the field. Come join us on the field and do this work. And if I was the, in the game, I would have slam dunked it 360. Yeah, right, right, right. And so, and, 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 and then it's set up to not be understood well purposefully, mm -hmm. right? And this is why we have to get back locally to teach-ins, mm -hmm. right? Which I, I think podcast and, and social media has allowed for virtual teach-ins to happen in mm -hmm. the way that they used to happen with John Lewis, right? We mm -hmm. down the street from John Lewis way and all this. Like, it used to be set up that way, but now we can do these things virtually. And people are taking advantage of that. So, you know, look, I think the way that I think about society is like a person. It's like a human being in the sense that it has so many different tentacles, so many veins, mm -hmm. so many cells, so many things going on. Yeah. Part of the way we think about that, when people get sick and people should just think about this, they get a cold, they get the flu, they, they get COVID. Hopefully they recover from that. There is a period where you feel a little bit better. Yeah. Then you start to feel worse. Yeah. That is your body fighting it. Mm -hmm. And then you get better and heal. And I think that's where we are. We are in a period where everything has been bubbled up. It's mm -hmm. came up. People are paying attention to stuff that they haven't had to pay attention to before. They are being forced yeah. to focus on these issues. And it's messy and it gets bad. Mm -hmm. But that's when... 
the change starts to happen. So we got to keep our foot yeah. on the gas, right? And at the Equity Initiative, we are investing fully in local organizations, local communities to do this work. We're going to be doing this in a very, very big way moving forward. And we look forward to continue to work with people here in Nashville. I got two questions. Yeah. What does it mean to speak truth to power? Because mm -hmm. you got a series of books that's yeah. titled that. So I want your response on that. And to close it out, what does it mean to be black? Yeah. I think what it means to speak truth to power is to first be authentic and have the ability to be in spaces where you do that. I think part of that authenticity means it's not just staying true to you, mm -hmm. but staying true to the communities and the people that you represent. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what we were saying, that when you get space at the table, you're not just representing yourself. Yeah. So as a person who, who has had the ability to be a tenure full professor, there's a level of academic freedom that comes along with that that I get in other roles that people don't have. But part of speaking truth to power is the ability to do that. Now, there's a certain way you have to approach it. Sometimes you got to kind of wait like a cat and just wait for your opportunity. It doesn't mean you always have to respond right away. Mm -hmm. It also means you consult with people who are experts who can give you guidance on what's going on. Mm -hmm. Part of your truth doesn't have to be uh, loud. It doesn't have to be angry, even though those emotions and that expression is warranted mm -hmm. in a lot of respects. But it's all about being effective. Mm -hmm. Right. And one thing that I've learned is that speaking truth to power is simply staying true to people's everyday experiences. Mm -hmm. It's simply saying, you know what, that that's not actually what people are experiencing. Yeah. Let me tell you what they are. Yeah. Right. And just staying true to that. And I think in terms of what it means to be black, you know, I think for me, what it means to be black is similar to this conversation. It's being authentic. I'm a black man. I can't change that. Right. And one thing I realized that when I turned 40 as a black man with two boys, is that I've been pulled over more times than my age. I don't have a criminal record, right? I have a PhD. Things that actually shouldn't matter in the context of the stat that I just gave out. Yeah. But they do to help people realize, people are like, oh wow, how, how did that happen? Yeah. But it also means going into other spaces where I'm the only. Yeah. But then being able to go into spaces where there is a community of people, oftentimes black, but a diverse group of people mm -hmm. that I know are thinking about my well-being. Yeah. And part of that is the connection that we also have to the African diaspora. See, part of what it means to be black, particularly in the United States, means that most of us don't know our lineage, mm -hmm. right? For me, it's a lineage that tracks back to enslavement here in Tennessee, right? Mm -hmm. I'm from Murfreesboro. Lebanon, I can trace back my family's lineage to a slave plantation, mm -hmm. right? But then I also know that my family is primarily from Western Africa in terms of that lineage in the transatlantic slave trade, but also Eastern Africa. Mm -hmm. And so part of thinking about that connection is most, what it means to be black in America yeah. is most people have a very limited scope mm -hmm. of how far they can go back and what that looks like. Right. And that means they can't dream, they can't look at that, they can't imagine the possibilities, they can't go back into their lineage and make those connections like other people can. Yeah. And so part of being black means we literally have to go on a restorative justice journey yeah. for ourselves and our families. Mm -hmm. That means looking into your genealogy. That means doing a family map and tracing people. Yeah. That means also talking to people to heal on a regular basis, whether that be through counseling, whether that be through spiritual guidance, whether that be through a family member or friends that you can do. Because being black in America continues to be hard. But this is one thing I'll say is I think about my 85-year-old grandma who I channel all the time. Looking at her life and what she's lived through, mm -hmm. from Jim Crow segregation, through the civil rights movement to now, and she was there yesterday, mm -hmm. being able to see this. Part of the way I think about that, I think about the progress that's been made in her lifetime. 
And as daunting as people think things are, in her lifetime, 85 years, tons, tons of progress has been made, mm -hmm. right? The progress we can make in a li lifetime can be transformative for future generations. And oftentimes, we're doing things now for the next. Right. People can't lose track of that. We're sitting here because of what people did before us. Thanks. And we have to continue to do that and realize that we all have a role to play in the process. Man, look, I know you got to catch a flight, <laughs> but I want to I wanna, one, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. We can go. I, it's so much yeah, more. We'll do I wanna, it again. We're going to do it again. But tell people where they can find your information, where they can yeah. learn more um, about AIR and just any, any contact information, any way people can connect to you and your resources um, and the organization those resources. Yeah, so people can go to um, AIR.org. They can search the Equity Initiative. They can find us on LinkedIn, AIR Equity Initiative, on um, Instagram and Twitter, AIR Informs, and then on Facebook, American Institutes for Research. Mm -hmm. For me, people can follow me at Sociologist Ray on all platforms, and then they will also see the AIR Equity Initiative attached to that. And so please connect with me. I'm mm -hmm. always down to connect with people and hear what's going on. Yeah. And we also continue to want to hear about what's happening locally because these grassroots organizations grow and they grow into amazing flowers and roses that help change the world. Dr. Ray Shaw, man, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Nah. This is great.